All right, everybody, go ahead, take your Bibles out. We're going to be in Acts 21, Acts chapter 21. If you've been with us for some time, we've been going verse by verse through the entire book of Acts. It's taken pretty much this entire year, calendar year, and it has been a good journey. If you remember, all the way back in the beginning of the book of Acts, we kind of get the, the theme for the entire book. Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so quite literally what we've seen as we've gone chapter by chapter through the book of Acts is that being lived out. The gospel began in Jerusalem, moved to Judea, then into Samaria, and we've been tracing Paul, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys in wider and wider circles around the entire Mediterranean of the first century. And so this has been a remarkable journey we've been on, and we're starting to get kind of close to the end. 28 chapters uh, in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 21 today. And today I have a unique message to give. Uh, It's unique because I really haven't preached on this topic Uh, in the last eight years of being a pastor, in depth. I've talked about it. We've discussed it here and there. I've taught a few classes on it outside of the Sunday gathering, but I've never necessarily dug directly into this particular concept. Uh, Here's why. We're going to be talking about the New Testament gift of prophecy. The New Testament gift of prophecy. If you've been in the church or you've been to other churches perhaps, you may have seen the gift of prophecy used in any number of different ways. And uh, this is uh, one of those gifts that I think causes a lot of controversy in the New Testament church because lots of different churches take lots of different positions over how this should be used, what it is, what's the significance of it, and what we do with it as a church. In the last few years, I can tell you personally, I sense God doing two uh, very clear things in my life. Um, And they're not on the one hand and the other hand. They, they go very much together. It's a single thing God's doing that I see in two different ways. Those who have been around for a while, I think, would see this in me, is my leadership of the church. On the one hand, I'm as convinced and uh, digging in deeper than I ever have into the authority of God's word. I never want to stray one syllable from what God intended to say through the word of God. I want to preach it with clarity. I want to live it with clarity. I want us to be bound by this book and know every single idea that we come across in this life. We can filter it through the word of God and God will reveal truth and God's word is good. That's an important word for us to hear. God's word is good. It gives us life when we build ourselves on his word. And at the same exact time, I want to lean fully into the Holy Spirit. And those two things are not contradictory with each other. In fact, they go with each other. As you dig into the word, you gain greater clarity of God, greater clarity of the gospel, and your understanding of what the Holy Spirit is and how he works elevates as well. I sense God pushing me into areas in my life in the last few years that frankly, I would say are very uncomfortable for me because I'm a word guy. I like the Bible. I like the clarity of the Bible. I like having my theology in neat boxes and being able to work through argumentation and logic like that. And the Holy Spirit is not apart from God's word in any way. The Holy Spirit is revealed through God's word, and yet he is not contained by our boxes that oftentimes we like to put him in. The Holy Spirit works in marvelous and miraculous ways at times. The study of the gift of prophecy, as I really have dug in, I've I've, I've read a a handful of books on this topic preparing for this sermon, uh, trying to make sure I have my ideas in order as I study this text. I'd say this, the study of this has made me both curious 
as well as nervous. Curious, here's why it's made me curious. I have a number of friends who, and people in this church, who walk with the Spirit in such a way that I oftentimes look in on their lives and I say, that's remarkable what God's doing in your life. He seems to be moving in miraculous ways through your ministry that are not normative in my own life, almost in a way that I I don't expect him to move in my own life. I'm confessing that to you now. And so there's a curiosity I have when I I read the book of Acts that we've been doing. I see the Holy Spirit and what he's able to do and what he has done in the life of the church. And then I see a number of my friends and the people in this church and other pastors I know that are experiencing what I would call a heightened experience of the Holy Spirit. And I'm very curious about it. And I regularly go before the Lord in prayer and say, God, I... I I want the fullness of what there is to be had of the Holy Spirit. But it also makes me nervous. Nervous for a few reasons. I've seen this particular gift abused many, many times in the church. Deeply abused. I've seen a number of people say, thus saith the Lord. And then they say something that came from their own heart, from their own mind. They say something that's going to happen in a year or two years. It doesn't happen. And they're deemed a false prophet. And I think that's a great danger to the church today because it ruins our witness when we have people going around saying they're prophesying in the name of the Lord and then what they say is not accurate or it doesn't come true if they're telling things about the future. And so I'm very nervous about this. I'd also add another level of nervousness to it is that a number of my great heroes in the Christian faith are folks who were cessationists. Theologically, what cessationism is, is it believes that the the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ended at the end of the apostolic age, the the time the last apostle passed away, and that we as New Testament Christians should not expect to experience any more supernatural things. Now, I happen to know that's not true because I've seen supernatural things happen in my own life a number of times. However, I'll say I respect a number of those voices deeply. I learn from them. And so I have an air of caution about me even as I begin to teach this. And I want you to know that as I enter into this passage with you. Frankly, what I'm doing today, uh, I'm inviting this church into a journey with me. That's what I think today is. This is a bit of a different sermon. It's more of a, there's a bit more lecture component today because I want to work through in entirety what I understand kind of as a baseline around the gift of prophecy. And I want to equip us as a church family so that we can know what it is, we can handle this gift well, and utilize it for the furtherance and upbuilding of God's church here in the city of Chicago and what he's doing among us. First, a couple things before we dig any further. Number one. Uh, I, I do believe I've experienced the gift of prophecy working through my ministry a handful of times. Uh, and, and I'll walk through, in the, in the coming weeks and months, I'll share some of those stories with you, little stories where I, I've seen it work through. But I'll also say this, I am, uh, I, I, I am not practiced in this to the degree that I would like to be. And what I mean by that is what I'm teaching today is from the text, I'm going to be teaching the Bible to us, and as I enter into this journey of refining my understanding of how this works, I'm inviting you to look at the text with me and ask the Lord to reveal to you how this works in your life. Number two, I'm very much indebted to Wayne Grudem. Uh, If you know the writer Wayne Grudem, he wrote the big systematic theology book that we use in our systematic theology classes. He wrote another book called The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament Church, which is a phenomenal resource. If you're looking for something to read to follow up to today, that's where I would direct you to. And finally, 
My aim is to equip the church. And so I invite your questions as we dig into this topic that is interesting to say the very least and very powerful when we really dig into it. As you have questions as you go home from here, I am your pastor. I love receiving your questions. Email, ask, that's my job, is to be here and to walk through this together. So pray with me. Father, as we dig into your word right now, we are asking for your Holy Spirit power to do something really remarkable in this place. Ignite our heart for the things of God. God, we don't wanna be a powerless church. We wanna walk in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit that we see being lived out in the book of Acts. We want that in our families. We want that in our marriages. We want that in our church ministries. We want that in our friendships. God, we want that in our evangelism. And so God, do a, a remarkable work in us, forming us by your word today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me do this. Let me read the entire passage to us that we have today. I'm gonna read the entire passage, Acts 21, verses one to 15, or one to 14, and then we will go through it bit by bit. Acts chapter 21, verses one to 14. Paul is heading back to Jerusalem at the very tail end of his third missionary journey. He says this, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So he's going through all the stops they made and the different ports they entered into. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. Where were they headed? To Jerusalem. So through the Spirit, there are a group of people saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul finishes his time there and heads off to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Pause. I love that scene. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Those are the types of relationships you should be forming. That from time to time you stop in public places, get down on your knees and pray together. And said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed, came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were uh, staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, notice the word we, that's the author Luke writing in the first person. So he's now turned into the first person. Luke is describing himself at this event. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Okay, let's start by giving you a sense of this passage. What did we just read? What you see in this passage very clearly is the Apostle Paul in all of his boldness being what he called in Acts chapter 20, constrained by the Spirit. 
He's got a dead set vision for my life. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm pretty sure I'm gonna get beaten up pretty bad if not die when I get there for the sake of the gospel. And no one can change his mind on this. He's got a dead set vision. This is where I'm going. And what we talked about last week is that as followers of Christ, we need to be in such harmony with the Holy Spirit, such clarity with our vision of where we're going and what God's calling us to do that when others are around us trying to detract us, distract us, or, or tell us that what we're doing, maybe we should water it down a little bit, that we would have such a nearness with the Holy Spirit that we would be able to separate the Holy Spirit's voice from detractors' voices and stay true to what God's called us to do. Let me just give you one very clear word here. Every good work you ever go out to do in the name of Jesus, you will have people telling you to slow down or not be so bold about it. I'm just letting you know that. There's never anything we've done as a church that's meant anything or had fruit in it where someone has not said, maybe you shouldn't go so hard. I can tell you in your own life, you're gonna start doing the work the Holy Spirit's calling you to. You're gonna have some people tell you, maybe you should stop, maybe you should slow down, maybe you shouldn't be so crazy. And I'm telling you, you need to have locked and loaded a prayer life with the Lord where the Holy Spirit is constraining you, as Paul said, and you know where he's calling you to. Okay, that takes courage and conviction to be able to hear those voices with gentleness say, thanks for your opinion, <laughs> we're going forward. Okay, that's what we see in Paul. He's got this very clear vision. He was determined. Secondly, we see in this passage that everyone around Paul did not want him to go to Jerusalem. Everybody. Paul was constrained. Everyone wanted him not to go. We actually see what I would consider three prophecies in this passage. First, we see in uh, verse four, let's read this one again. Verse four, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, very interesting language, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, commentators debate, was this prophecy, was this not prophecy, all throughout different commentaries. I believe this was a prophetic word. It's got all the elements of a prophetic word. These were disciples. They were filled by the Spirit. They were trying to listen to the Spirit as best as they possibly could. And they're telling Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, here's what's very interesting about this. Does Paul listen to what they say? Come on. Does he listen to them? No. He hears them, but then he goes to Jerusalem. What that means is that if this was a prophetic word, that Paul did not believe this prophetic word carried the same level of authority that we might say the prophets of the Old Testament had. Because to disobey a prophet in the Old Testament was to disobey the very words of God. And that was punishable in any number of means by God. But Paul here has this prophetic word said to him, don't go, and he says, thanks for your opinion, I'm going to disobey that prophetic word which means that he did not believe it carried the same level of his authority as an Old Testament prophet. Second person we meet, we meet in verse nine. He, ha, uh, he stops by Philip's house in Caesarea, and it says that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Hmm. Now, a number of things this reveals to us. Number one, the gift of prophecy is open to both men and women. That shouldn't be controversial, but it is controversial. The gift of prophecy is open to both men and women as we see right here. However, secondly, we see this. Uh, we don't know exactly what they were prophesying to Paul in that moment. It doesn't tell us what they said. But if you look at the text, it's sandwiched between multiple people saying don't go to Jerusalem. So they said something to him, 
The group before him said, don't go to Jerusalem. The group after him said, don't go to Jerusalem. And right in the middle, these four women are prophesying to Paul. Chances are they probably said, don't go to Jerusalem. Can't be certain. Most people agree that's probably the contents of their prophecy. We can't know for sure. However, they said a prophetic word. Third person we see is this man named Agabus. Now, if you've been with us in this journey through the book of Acts, we've met Agabus before, the prophet Agabus. We met him back in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. This will come up behind me. Let me read it to you. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas. Now, what do we know about Agabus at this point in the story? Agabus was a very well-known man who had the gift of prophecy, who had earlier in the book of Acts used that gift of prophecy to protect the church. The Lord had given him a word. A famine was coming. The disciples took drastic action to prepare for that famine, and many in the church were saved as a result of taking those protective measures. Now, side note, history has shown that there was a famine in the exact days uh, in that exact period. That, that was a historical thing. A number of atheistic scholars would say there was no famine in the land during that time period. History has shown recently, in fact, that indeed there was a famine in the land. And that's one of the ways that the Bible is being proven true over time. However, as we meet this man, Agabus, he's a well-known prophet who now speaks to Paul again. Uh, verse 10, we meet, let's see what Agabus says. He says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and came to us. This is a third prophet we meet. He took Paul's belt bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, this kind of action is something an Old Testament prophet would oftentimes do. He'd get a word from the Lord and then he'd take some physical action, like wear a certain piece of clothing or, or uh, lay down in a certain way and it would be a visible way of demonstrating the word that God was saying. This was common in the Old Testament. Agabus is kind of behaving a little like an Old Testament prophet wrapping his arms in this belt. But there's something interesting about Agabus he gets the prophecy wrong on two accounts in this, in this passage. He's fundamentally wrong in two different things he said. He got the sense right. By the end of this chapter, Paul will be arrested in Jerusalem. That's by the end of chapter 21. However, two of the details, Agabus says, are fundamentally wrong. First, Agabus said that it would be the Jews who would bind Paul in Jerusalem. Jump with me down to verse 33 of the same chapter. Then the tribune, that's the Roman guard, came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. It wasn't the Jews that bound Paul. It was the Roman guard that bound Paul. He was wrong on that account. Secondly, Agabus directly said that the Jews will deliver Paul to the Gentiles. So the idea that Agabus said is that he's going to go down, get caught by the Jews, and then the Jews are going to hand Paul over to the Roman guard. That's not what happens either. If you read in verses 31 to 32, we read how he actually got arrested. As they were seeking to kill him, that's the Jews, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul. 
Well, that's a different story. That's not what Agabus said would happen. Now, this is actually very interesting. By Old Testament standards of a prophet, that makes Agabus a false prophet. I need you to hear this. Old Testament prophet, we have a test to know if they're speaking from God or not. And that test is, if what they said is going to happen doesn't happen exactly as they said it was going to happen, they're a false prophet. And there is a punishment for that, which is very severe. The punishment for a false prophet in the Old Testament is capital punishment. It's the death penalty. You don't go speak for God and say what's gonna happen in the Lord's name, and then it comes out wrong, because that means you weren't speaking for God in the first place. Here's what's interesting about this. Paul... And the writer of the book of Acts doesn't seem overly concerned that Agabus got some of the details wrong. In fact, it seems by the way this is written, almost as an encouragement of the gift of prophecy. We've already seen earlier that Agabus was a well-known, well-renowned man who had received information. He was a gifted prophet. Here, Luke's not concerned necessarily. Luke's very clear. An astute reader of this chapter would see very clearly, Agabus got it wrong. Yet that's not the point of the passage. It seems that he got the sense of it right, and that was very important. Okay, that's the text, all right? Three prophecies around Paul. Paul's constrained to go to Jerusalem. He heads to Jerusalem and gets arrested. Now, let's work through this gift of prophecy. My aim here is to equip us as a church. I want to use the text as our basis, try to understand this, and encourage us to lean further into the Holy Spirit, perhaps more than we've ever done before. So let's, let's start with a few questions. Number one, what's the difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy? What's the difference between Old Testament prophecy and the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church? Well, we could do a whole day or series of weeks on Old Testament prophecy and what they are. Here's what you need to know. When an Old Testament prophet spoke, he was speaking the very words of God with authority. And so oftentimes, the Old Testament prophets would actually say, thus saith the Lord, right? That was the term or the phrase that they would oftentimes bring up. And it was a way of saying, look, God is directly speaking through me. The very words I'm speaking that are coming out of my vocal cords are God's words directed to you. The very words themselves were authoritative. The grammar and the syntax were authoritative. That's why when you read the Bible and you read the Old Testament prophets, we are held accountable to their words. Why? Because they were writing and preaching and speaking God's very words. Let me give you one example just so you kind of get a sense for this. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11. The prophet Isaiah, opening chapter of the book of Isaiah, he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? This is God speaking through Isaiah. What to me are the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. What's the prophet Isaiah doing here? He's assuming to be able to speak authoritatively for God as the voice piece of God. Once again, I've told you there were two tests in the Old Testament, or a test, one test to tell you whether or not they were true or false, and another to tell you what to do if you found out they were false. Let me just show you where we get that from. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22. We read this. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. 
And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay, Old Testament prophecy, speaking the very words of God. And notice, it's a very important thing that they get the words right. Capital punishment is no light thing in the eyes of God. It's reserved for incredibly deep sins under Old Testament law. False prophecy is one of them. In the New Testament, we have a group of individuals who have the same level of authority. Who are they? Someone yell it out. The apostles. The apostles are, are, carry the same authority as Old Testament prophets did. Why do we call them apostles? That's an interesting study. I think the reason for it is, is by the first century, the word prophet had been so watered down both in culture and among the Jews. And we get this from reading extra biblical texts and see how they were using the word a prophet was here. Sometimes, for example, Philo, the writer Philo, writing in about 40 AD, he talks about prophets, someone who's just a speaker. Anybody who gets up to talk at any time is giving a prophetic word. That term prophet had been so watered down in culture that indeed it almost seemed necessary to have a new term that could identify in the same way that the word prophet was used in the Old Testament. That term we have is apostle, the 12 apostles. As the apostles speak and as they write, they were speaking and writing at times using the exact words, the same grammar, the same words, the same syntax that God was speaking through their mouth. That's why when we read their words, we read them with the same level of authority as we read the Old Testament prophets. It's the authority of the word of God. He gave them the words to speak. And we are held accountable for listening to every word that those apostles spoke. There were 12 of them. Now, New Testament prophecy is different in a, in a slight way from Old Testament prophecy. First of all, New Testament prophecy is one of the spiritual gifts that we see are available to the church in the New Testament. What do I mean by that? Okay, if you're new to Christianity, this is very critical. This should not be advanced information. This is the 101 class of Christianity right here, okay? When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that every one of your sins, past, present, and future, are paid for in full by Jesus' blood on the cross. Now, this is incredible news for you. And if you've not yet made that decision, I want you to make that decision before you leave this room today. It's the most important decision you can ever make in your life. Jesus shed his blood that you could have your sins forgiven. If you don't believe in Jesus, it means you're out of relationship with God, both in this life and in the life to come, because you know your sin. You know your heart, you know your mind, you know the sins you've actually committed and the scars you carry to show them. We're all guilty before a holy God. But Jesus shed his blood for you. Now, when you put your faith in Christ, you not only get made right with God, but God then endows you with what are called spiritual gifts. And what these gifts are intended for is to be used to build the kingdom of God in collaboration with every other person you do life with who's in the church. Every follower of Christ is given a different set and degree of spiritual gifts. To give you an idea of some of these gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 11. This is not all of them, just a short list for you. We see wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy. That's what we're talking about today. 
All of these gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Here's what that means. We all get a different set of gifts and we all get different degrees of those gifts. I like to joke around when I talk about this. One of the gifts that God's given me is the gift of teaching, as we see from in there. Billy Graham got a higher degree of that gift than I got, okay? How do we know that? Because of the fruit that came from his life when he exercised his gift. It was remarkable. There's a different degrees that God gives based on his desire and his will. But we all have different gifts that need to be used inside the church. Now, let me read to you this next passage. 1 Corinthians 14, perhaps the most important passage when we talk about the gift of New Testament prophecy and what it is. The idea that I get from studying the different passages on this is that New Testament prophecy is where God gives to a person a sense or a word or an idea or we might even go so far as to use the word a premonition some sense of an idea of a message that needs to be communicated. When that sense is given by the Lord, placed inside a prophet's heart in the New Testament, that person who has that gift then communicates that to another person. Once they communicate it, that's the gift of prophecy. Again, what's happening? God's giving some kind of revelation to a Christian. This is part of the gifting. That needs to be communicated as a means of encouragement, as a means of sharpening or shaping the New Testament church. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29 to 31. He's describing a gathering of the church, perhaps a Sunday morning gathering like this. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. All right, let's think about that for a little bit. What's he saying about the gift of prophecy here? Number one, uh, the point of it is that all may learn and all may be encouraged. God's giving revelation, that's the text, he's giving revelation to these New Testament prophets that needs to be communicated to the church and the point is that God wants to encourage, lift up and give an important word to the church. And so the prophets need to have a boldness and a courage to say this word that, that's been given to them from the Lord. But also notice it says to weigh what is said. When the New Testament prophets speaks, there's a sense that what they say might not be totally accurate. That's why there needs to be a weighing of what is said. And so the church needs to consider what was said. Is it in line with scripture? Is it in line with what God has been speaking into the church in other places? Or does it seem like it's out of sense? Whenever we see the gift of prophecy being used in a New Testament church in a healthy way, there are bounds put up in such a way so that Followers of Christ who are mature can hear the prophetic word and weigh it and say, is this true? Is it partially true? Is it false? And what's the corrective measure here? Now, let me, let me tell you a story that uh, Wayne Grudem shares I think is a great way to capture this gift of New Testament prophecy. He says that he was in a church and uh, a, a, one of their missionaries was in from out of town and he was visiting and giving an update on what had been happening on the mission field. And as he's giving his update, he's reading through his script he has, and he's getting ready to, you know, just share his details of the mission field. And all of a sudden, he stops, and the missionary says this. Now, I didn't plan to say this, but it seems that the Lord is indicating that someone in this church has just walked out on his wife and family. If that is so, let me tell you that God wants you to return to them and learn to follow God's pattern for family life. Hmm. Now, this missionary did not know it, but that day in the balcony was a man 
who had not been to church in a number of years, but he was sitting there that day, and the previous night, he had walked out on his wife and kids. That day, he came up after the service, crying, received Jesus Christ, returned to his family that night. That's prophecy. That's how it's used. That's how we need it used in this place. What do we see in this passage? Now, what do we see in that story? A number of things that are very important for us. Number one, did you see the humility of the prophet? How did he say it? He said, I didn't plan to say this. Listen to this. But it seems the Lord is indicating. Notice what he didn't say. Thus saith the Lord. New Testament prophets do not say, thus saith the Lord. Okay? They don't say that. Here's why. The words of the gift of a prophet are not the same authority of the Old Testament. What God is doing instead is giving a sense to a person, and that person is then filtering it with their own words and their own emotions, which is why I think these prophets got it wrong in Acts 21. I think they were giving a prophetic word. What was the prophetic word? Their dear, beloved friend was about to be arrested and beaten. Now imagine if you got that prophetic word. How might that come out of your mouth? <laughs> it might come out like this. Man, I don't want you to go. <laughs> Please don't go. That wasn't the message that was being given to them. The sense that God was saying is what was going to happen. What was going to happen is he was going to be arrested. Paul was in Jerusalem. As that filters through imperfect, non-authoritative prophets, the words themselves that came out were a mixture of truth what the sense was that was correct, and what was false, the prophet's own misunderstanding of how to interpret it. Now go back to this global missionary story. Here's what I love about this story. One, his humility. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, it seems the Lord is indicating to me. This is a man who is practiced at his gift of prophecy. He's standing up in a pulpit at this moment. Mind you, it doesn't have to just be in a pulpit. This is just where he was standing. He's standing in the pulpit, and he gets a sense from the Lord, and he's so in tune with the Holy Spirit that he can discern the Spirit's voice immediately from the voice in his own head. And he knows, okay, I gotta listen to this one. Okay? That's a mature prophet. But then notice what he does. Once he gives the word, he then gives his own advice based on the word of God. He says this. He says, if that is so, let me tell you, God wants you to return to your family. Now, how does he know that? Well, the word of God is clearly authoritative on that. You can't leave your family. Marriage is for life. That's what, that's what this is for. And so what he's done is he's gotten a sense. He's humbly communicated it. And then rather than giving his own opinion, his own advice, what, he goes back to the word of God and he says, if this is so, God's advice is here from the word of God. That's prophecy done well. Let me say it again. We need a lot more of that in this church. We need more people listening to the Holy Spirit who have the gift of prophecy, weighing it, knowing how to handle it, speaking into the life of the church. Because I look at what happened that day. This man had his whole life changed. His whole family was changed. Those kids had their life changed. They got their dad back. All because one man was willing to hear the Holy Spirit and speak the truth that he knew was being put on his heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 24 to 25, it says, if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all, right? This is what prophetic words do. It's speaking truth. And then listen to what it says. 
The secrets of his heart, the unbeliever who's in the room, are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is real among you. Huh. So here's the sense of 1 Corinthians 14. We gather in a place like this, God gives a prophetic word that's handled maturely and humbly, and it's given in such a way, and it's spoken with clarity, so when a non-believer walks into this place, or walks into your home where a group of followers of Christ are gathered, or walks into any place where there are few Christians gathered, and the gift of prophecy being used, the non-believer looks in and says, what did I just see with my eyes? How could that word be being given? And he falls on his face and worships the king of kings. That's the gift of prophecy. That's the power that's unleashed through this gift. Where did Agabus get it wrong? Let's go back to our text today. He got it wrong not because the sense was wrong. The sense was right. He was misconstruing the sense with his own emotion over the reality of what God was, confu- was saying. A New Testament gift of prophecy may have aspects that are correct and aspects that are incorrect. But just because there are risks involved with this does not mean we should not step into it. Church, here's what I want to call you to. For some time now, my prayer life, what I've been praying for is a prayer like this. God, I want to pray with power. I I want to pray with power. God's done a wonderful work in my life just as a, as, a, in, as a follower of Christ. Before I'm your pastor, I'm a man who loves Jesus. That's what I am. I'm a, I'm a husband to my wife. I got three little girls, right? I'm in, I'm in situations like all of you are in. And what I know is I read the book of Acts and I, 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 I wanna love Jesus with such an authentic power that when I pray, I, there's, there's things happening. And I read that in this book. I see that. I know you see it in this book. We can't get through the book of Acts without seeing that in this book. Stuff's happening here. And, I, and you know what's amazing? I, I watch it. Stuff happens in our church. I'm, I watch things happen in our church. But also I compare it to this and I just say, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a power there that I'm not sure if I'm fully grasping yet. That's my prayer life. And I want to bring us into that place where the blood of Jesus Christ is far more than just our justification. Because it is our justification before God. He's forgiven us of our sins. Praise God, hallelujah. He could take us all right now and every one of us will be dancing in heaven and having a good meal together. I love that. But I also know that we're sitting in the midst of a city that's going broke spiritually and what we need are Holy Spirit-filled Christians stepping boldly in so that when non-believers walk into this room, they can't help but leave weeping on their face because they encountered Jesus in this place. I want that. I want the power of the thunder of God to rain from this place. And what it takes is every follower of Christ hearing today's message and saying, okay, I might not have really practiced any of this stuff. I didn't even know there were spiritual gifts. Maybe I don't even know what my own spiritual gifts are. Not everyone gets this gift. We all get different gifts. But we have to exercise all of them intentionally in the church. We gotta do it together. We gotta lift each other up. We gotta call each other out and say, Did you, I don't know if you know this, I see this gift in you. Did you do you know you have that gift? Because you gotta start sharpening that for the kingdom and the glory of God. It takes a whole church family to do that. God forbid we go through this whole season of Chicago falling down. And Holy Spirit-filled Christians are content to just come into a church on a Sunday in their holy huddle. There's more power in the church than that. 
A while ago, I was so encouraged, my wife and I, we, uh, you know, we've been going through a hard season. We, we, we got three little girls, and there's some just things going on with our, with our little children that we, we love them dearly, and just stuff to work through. It's hard. My wife and I have been through the ringer with this stuff. And one day, I got a phone call. Some of you know Lisa Bishop. Anyone know Lisa Bishop? What a woman of God. Ooh, she is just on fire for the gospel. She sent a text to my wife in a time when we were both just having a hard day. And the text said something like this. I, don't, I should have pulled the actual text up. It said, Sarah, I want you to know, I just had a vision from the Lord of all three of your girls as young women worshiping and praising Jesus. Now, can I just tell you what that did to my wife and me? I see my wife breaking down. It just, if, do you know what that does? It, it fills you. It, it sets you ready to go. Why? Because Lisa Bishop had the ability to have a prophetic word given and just had the audacity to say it. And here we are, probably a year later, when we go through a hard day this week, we go back to Lisa's words. And we say, man, let's keep going. We're gonna get there. These girls are gonna know Jesus. They're gonna love Jesus. See, this is the New Testament church on fire, done well. When people know their gifts, they use them and they invest them into each other. Okay, what do we do with this? Number one, practically speaking. We need to hold our lives with open hands like this to the Lord. He's got more to say in our lives than what we're giving him permission to say and do. He's got more for you, Christian. He's not done with you. He's got a word to give you. There's power to be done through your life. There's people that need to know Jesus that are gonna come to know Jesus through you. We need a boldness and a courage to recognize that. And we're not slowing down on that one. I'm not pushing pause on anything. We're going full steam ahead. We need to do this humbly. If you believe you have the gift of prophecy, it must be done with all humility. Number two, we've gotta give space in this church to listen to the Holy Spirit. Listening means actually getting on your knees with hands open like this and saying, God, what are you saying? Speak to me. I'm open to hearing from you. And then learning slowly how to listen to the things of God and separate them from your own voice. This is very hard for me. I, I, my voice in, is running in my head all the time. And sometimes I have a hard time separating what's from God, what's my own head. It takes practice and maturity. All prophetic words must be tested. Don't just listen to anybody who says they got a prophetic word to give to you. Test it. If it's true, the Lord will secure it in your heart. Go home, pray over it. If it's false, go back, tell them, I think you got it wrong. Was there something we didn't get here? Correct. And number four, don't force what's not there. I don't want us all going to each other with stuff we're just making up in our heads, okay? This is a spiritual gift. We should take it with utmost severity. But if we get this right, I think there's something special to be had. Let me read to you a quote from Wayne Grudem. He says, I'm convinced that if the gift of prophecy were allowed to function, at least in some gatherings in the life of the church, it would add a rich new measure of vitality and worship, a sense of awe that comes from seeing God at work in this very moment and in this very place. The overwhelming sense of wonder that causes us to exclaim, truly, God is in this place. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We love your Holy Spirit. We recognize that there's some more work for us to do ahead. God, I'm praying for a Holy Spirit movement literally right now in this place, that there will be conviction of heart in this room, 
that no one would leave here thinking that you're done with them, that there's not new levels of maturity, new levels of gifting, new gifts, new ways of using the gifts, new prophetic words to be had and to be given. God, I pray for power in this place. I pray for a powerful ministry that impacts the city where you've called us to live. God, we're hungry for an overflow of the Holy Spirit in this place. We're hungry for it, Lord. And we wanna live in full obedience to you and your word, and we wanna do it well. We don't wanna be sloppy with it. I see churches get this wrong, and it makes me sick. God, we wanna do it biblically. We wanna do it rightly. We wanna be encouraging and powerful and so clearly the Holy Spirit that it wouldn't be our own words. No one would ever get that confused. Forgive us when we get this stuff wrong. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.